course of the days that we have already been here. We have been talking about some of the qualities and abilities or attributes of the mind necessary to develop, to become mindful, to become concentrated. And a few nights ago, Stephen spoke of the classical hindrances or obstructions to concentration. You'll remember they're your good friends that you report when you go to report each day. Sleepiness, doubt, aversion, disliking, liking, restlessness, wandering mind. These are classical hindrances to concentration. What is concentration? Concentration is the unification of the mind or the gathering of the mind into one-pointedness so that the mind is not fragmented and splintered but rather focused on a single object for a period of time. The Pali word normally or commonly used for concentration is the word jhana. The definition of jhana given in the text reads like this. It is a state free from sense desires and improper mental contents. He or she enters, the yogi enters, and remains in the first jhana, or absorption, a subtle state of joy and happiness, born of seclusion with applied and sustained application of mind. A subtle, exalted state of joy and happiness. Unfortunately for most of us, we're still in the rather gross and mundane state of sleepiness and restlessness and aversion and wanting. How are we to get from what we currently experience to this subtle, exalted state? Tonight I want to talk about the factors of mind that directly oppose the hindrances. They're called the jhana factors, or the factors of concentration. The first hindrance that you'll remember that we deal with most of the time is tinamida, or sloth and torpor. It's when the mind is paralyzed, can't move, can't get to the object, very sluggish, heavy, dull. The mind is really stiff, doesn't have any vitality. 
For some people it's early in the morning, hungover from sleep, and for some people it's after eating, and for some people it's in the evening. It can come any time. But it's the half-hearted attempt to meditate or to come and sit and to observe rising, falling, or the in and out. When tinamita or when sleepiness is present in the mind, it is such that it dulls and stupefies all of our mental functions so that none of them work. It's like a heavy blanket over everything. Nothing in the mind can move. The mind becomes very shrunken and narrow, very lethargic. My teacher in Burma says, it's sickly. We know what it feels like because we come across it each day. Trying real hard, can't see a thing. Just woolly-headed. Or the bobbing and nodding, the swaying, the jerking. Or the just plain laziness. Come and sit and gaze nowhere for an hour. This is sleepiness. Lack of vitality. The first hindrance, sleepiness, is opposed by the mental factor of applying the mind or initially contacting or connecting with the object. It's called vitaka in the Pali language. It's the turning of the mind towards the meditation object, aiming the mind towards the meditation object, pushing the mind towards it, and connecting with it. We talk about connecting with the beginning of the in-breath at the nose or the abdomen. It's that initial connection that's the factor of mind that opposes sleepiness. You know, we pick a made we pick a primary object, either the movement of the abdomen or the sensations at the nostril, and we say, Oh, this is my primary object. And when we come to sit, sometimes we sit and never send the mind to the primary object. Never aim the mind in that direction. How are we going to find it? Can't be done. The rising and falling is not in the arm. Sorry. You have to aim the mind precisely. Send the mind so that you can connect with that object. If we just come and sit, get comfortable, the mind can be in a rather panoramic mode, taking in everything, not really looking at anything in particular. 
not aimed very precisely. And it can't be done just once. If we come in at the beginning of the sitting and say, okay, primary object, let's look. Take a look and wait for the bell. <laughs> this doesn't work very well either because the mind stays aimed for about a split second and then it's gone again. And it requires to really overcome sleepiness or to overcome laziness, it requires aiming the mind or connecting the mind to the object at every instant, continuously, whether it's the primary object of movement of the abdomen or the sensations at the nostrils, or if you're observing the lifting of the leg in walking. The leg is anywhere from the hip to the sole of the foot. Anywhere you observe sensations there, is the primary object. Not the birds or the leaves or the clouds or the sun. Wrong aim. <laughs> Secondary objects also. If when they arise and take your mind off from the primary object, you still have to look at them. You have to connect with them or keep the mind repeatedly sent to and touching that object. Pain is pretty easy because the mind goes there automatic. But some of the other things, itching, slight tensions, discomfort, unpleasantness, somewhere in the leg, somewhere in the back, don't know really where, just want it to go away. If we don't really aim the mind or connect the mind to the object, it'll be dull. It'll be hazy. We won't see it clearly. We'll be sleepy. When the connecting of the mind is developed, it has the characteristic of bringing the mind to the object or in touch with the object, bringing the object to the mind. When that happens, or when it's working, when it's developed, the mind has energy. It has a freshness and a vitality such that it moves. The mind isn't staying still. It isn't kind of petrified, but it is fresh and vital and alive, able to be with the object. As you know, the rising may take a second or two and it's got many subtleties within it, or the in-breath. It's not just a tingle. There's a lot happening in the course of a single in-breath. The mind has to be kept connected to it the whole time, so that the mind is alive and alert, fresh. It's the initial connection with the object, whatever object, that overcomes sleepiness. Why is that? To connect with the object requires some 
desire to do that. It requires the energy and some steadiness of mind to put it in the place where the object arises. All of that requires some being present and energy and effort and determination that puts sleepiness aside. Sleepiness is a dream state, gone, not very focused. You might notice either whenever it is in your particular time of the day that the mind is not sleepy, that there is a buoyancy to the mind, an energy in the mind that is easy to move the mind around, to get it to do what you want, to put it where you want. It may not stay there long, but at least it responds to your interest. And then compare that to the time of day when you're really sleepy and you tell your mind to look at the primary object and it's just like a rock stuck in mud. It doesn't move. The mind is really alive and fresh when sleepiness is gone, or when vitaka, the connecting, is developed. So the first hindrance, sleepiness, dullness, laziness, is opposed directly by the development of the ability to connect with your object. The second hindrance, that Stephen talked about, is doubt. Doubt in this case, or for us in this particular practice, is the doubt about what's happening. The doubt about what am I observing. If the object isn't very clear, if we're not really aimed in the right direction, we're not sure what the object is. We're not going to talk about the grand doubts of whether this practice is what you want to be doing because you're here, whether these teachers know what they're doing because we're here. (laughs) But it's the doubt in that moment of trying to be mindful. What is the object? Did I see it clear enough to know what it is? Or is there some doubt in my mind? That doubt is somewhat like delusion because there's an unclarity, a not knowing, because the mind is not securely fastened to the object that you're observing. And so when the mind isn't fastened to the object and we don't really know what it is, we begin thinking, Is this the right primary object for me? Should I be noting this object? I wonder if I should be noting something else. What am I supposed to be doing now? Because the mind isn't connected and clearly observing the meditation object, we begin thinking, wondering if we're doing it right. When doubt's present in the mind, it 
pulls the plug on our source of energy. We just can't get it together to maintain our energy if we don't know what we're doing is right. Someone or a yogi in the experiencing doubt is likened to someone traveling in a foreign country or in a place they've never been before, coming to an intersection without road signs and not knowing which way to go. You can imagine if you were traveling and came to an intersection and there was a fork leading left and right and you didn't know where to go. Can't take a step in either direction confidently. Can't focus the mind confidently on the meditation object. Doubt's present. The mental factor which directly opposes doubt is called vichara, and it's what we're talking about here when we use the word when we ask you to sustain your attention. It's the continual or the holding ability of the mind to stay on an object. Sustaining the mind on the object that you have connected with or that you have aimed your mind towards. Keeping the mind aimed in that direction so that when the object arises, you connect with it and you stay with it The rising is a second or two. You can't just take a quick glance and catch the whole of it. You have to stay there for the full two seconds. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end of each rising, each falling. Can we observe, can we stay there for that long to observe all three phases of the rising? and the next falling? Can we hold the mind there long enough to clearly see what the object is? Not just think that we see the object. Take a glance at the rising and then wander for the next one and a half seconds. Take a glance at the falling, wander for the next one and a half seconds. Come to report to the teacher What do you observe in the rising? I don't know. Something. It's there. I know it's there. But I'm not sure what it is. There's some doubt. The mind is not able to be held on the object. Not able to sustain the mind on the object. When we can develop the ability to sustain the mind after connecting, that sustaining has the quality of investigating or looking closely or examining the object. When we can get close enough to the object, touch it, stay with it, examine it, look at it, We know what it is. We've tasted it. We've felt it. There can't be any doubt in the mind when we know 
what we're observing. When we see the beginning, the middle, and the end of the object, we know what it is. We know what happens to it as we observe it. If we just take a glance, we don't know what happens to it. Because we turn away before the object is gone. The example given of the way that this connecting and sustaining works, it's like when I ring the gong, there's an initial contact and there's a continual ringing. When the mallet connects with the gong, it's the connection. When the gong rings, it's the sustaining. The mind needs to do the same with each and every meditation object. Another way of understanding connecting and sustaining is to consider that the mind has to touch the object and then rather than just lay gently on the surface, the mind has to be rubbed into the object, like rubbing a silver bowl or something. If you have the cloth with the cleaning stuff on it and you just lay it on the bowl, it's not going to get clean. The cloth has to be rubbed on the bowl to make it shine, to clean it up, purify it. The mind has got to be put in touch with the object, rubbed into the object, so that it can know clearly what the object is. There can't be any ringing of the gong if the mallet doesn't touch it. There can't be any sustaining of the mind on an object if you haven't connected with it. Connecting is the precursor of sustaining. It's that initial connection with the object that has got to be developed to be able to sustain and to know clearly what the object is. They work together, connecting and sustaining. And they're really the most important factors that I'm going to talk about tonight. When the connecting and the sustaining is developed, and it's continuous from one object to the next, or from rising to falling, to secondary objects, to thoughts, to wandering mind, back to the primary object. When the connecting and sustaining is continuous like that, there's really no room for hindrances to arise in the mind. And so the mind is clear, purified from its defilements or its hindrances, unhindered by our good friends. 
When the mind is free of the hindrances, it's secluded and just is coming here to a quiet place, is a physical seclusion. When the mind is secluded, it gets very happy. When the mind is secluded from the hindrances, it gets happy and it has a lot of faith and energy and mindfulness naturally arise in the mind that's happy. For those of you doing metta, or when you do metta, metta is the object of your meditation at that time. The same two factors of mind are developed in the pervasion of metta, so that when you pervade metta to your benefactor, to yourself, keeping the mind, making the initial connection with the feeling of love, and sustaining it, holding it, throughout a minute or two or for as long as you can. It's the connecting with the object and staying with the object that develops the concentration, that keeps the hindrances away so that the feeling of love can grow. This connecting and sustaining is really the essential part of the meditation. Without it, nothing else can happen. It depends on, the initial connecting depends on a firm resolve in the mind and determination to do it and the energy to freshen the mind. A word about the energy Now, being here for a couple of weeks, the energy has built up quite a lot. And it's not so much, for many of you, the need to arouse more energy somehow, but it's rather the precise application of the energy that you already have that will determine or that will develop the ability to connect and sustain. If the aiming of the mind is precise and very sensitively connecting with the object, you have enough energy. More energy applied wrongly or not so precisely, there might be a lot of energy, but if the aim isn't right or if the connection isn't made, it leads the mind to a lot of tension, a lot of fragmentation. And tension in the mind makes you tired. So if you're making a lot of effort and still getting tired, check to see how precisely the aim is and how delicately you are connecting with the object. Not trying to smash the object, just trying to catch it when it arises. So now we've developed the ability to connect with the object, 
to stay with the object through its duration and really see it for what it is. What happens next? We don't like what we see. Aversion comes. Dosa, ill will. The range of experience of aversion is extensive. It's not just out-and-out hatred. It does include that. But boredom, too, is an aversion to the present experience. Frustration, disappointment, these also are manifestations of aversion or dosa, disliking. When dosa is present, we don't want to experience whatever it is, and we can't. Someone came to me today, hmm, bad mental states all day yesterday. Disliked it so bad, couldn't note it. But knew it was there, knew it was bad, but just didn't want to experience it. The aversion was around all day. The mind really wants to run away when it doesn't like what it sees. And the mind gets very brittle, very dry, very dull. And not tolerant. The mind is actually burning up with aversion. Fear also is a form of aversion. It can be anticipatory or it can be from remembering something or expecting something. You know, the last sitting was excruciating pain and you don't want to sit the next time. Fear that you might experience the same thing. Aversion to sitting. When aversion's in the mind, the mind is really rather aggressive and rough, very harsh, kind of a brutal thing. Doesn't want to get close. So aversion or anger is the third hindrance. factor or the factor of concentration that directly opposes aversion and disliking is joy. Michelle spoke about joy a couple of nights ago. But joy is the intense interest in observing what's happening. Initially we can, through dint of just a lot of desire. We can create this interest to see what's happening. But when we use that level of interest to see, and what we see is awful, that level of interest is gone pretty quick. It withers in the face of pain. It withers in the face of unpleasant memories. It's gone. We don't want to look at that stuff. The joy I'm talking about results from the actual connecting and sustaining 
of the mind with the object. When you think in your life of what you like to do most, whether it's painting or swimming or cooking or, I don't know, whatever people like to do. When you get involved in it, time flies. The interest is there. You're connected with and your interest is sustained on what you're doing. No aversion enters the mind. The same can happen when the connecting and the sustaining with the meditation object is highly developed. The interest is there. You don't have to create it. It's just there with the clear observing, the clear continuous observing. It is said that joy in the mind of a yogi is like the feeling a desert traveler would have when they saw an oasis. The mind and body get very elated, very joyful, very interested in what's happening or about to happen. Michelle briefly mentioned that there are five grades or five different types of joy. I want to mention them again. The first is a minor type of joy. And you should understand that this joy can come in a moment and be gone the next. It's not that, you know, when you get joy, you got it for three days running. Be satisfied with about two seconds. You know, it's a real hit. If it stays longer, good. Enjoy that too. That's what it is. It's joy. The first is a real minor joy. It's when you experience something and your skin just ripples, goosebumps, tingles. Might only be an instant. It's just a moment of joy, just a, a joyful shock. The second type of joy is a little stronger. The whole body can feel a jolt, or there can be chills and trembling in the body. Or it can have an experience similar to standing in an elevator and it starts down quickly. The same can happen sitting perfectly still on your cushion, that feeling of dropping. The third type of joy is one where the body is filled with energy and sometimes moving and extending and stretching and sometimes trembling and shaking, really like electricity running through the body. Fourth type and this one always interested me when I read about it in the text. The fourth type of joy, when it's fully developed, accounts for levitation, movement of the body. Sometimes we can experience it just in spontaneous body movements 
when the body gets really light and starts moving quickly or slowly. It's said that when it's fully developed that one can learn to keep it up, so to speak. (laughs) But sometimes just very pleasant and joyful feelings rushing through the body and causing the body to move. The fifth type of joy is one where one might feel totally inflated or much like you're filled with helium or something. That's the the light one. Where the body and mind is so light almost as if it's not sitting on the ground. When this joy arises due to the contact in the clear sustaining and observation of the object, how can you dislike your experience? Anger's gone, aversion's gone. No matter what the object is, if joy is present in the mind while you observe it, you're not going to dislike it. The mind filled with joy, filled with that degree of interest and that degree of energy and zest, is really bright, really light. No problem staying with objects. Again, remember that this isn't a state to attain and to hang on to for the rest of the retreat. It doesn't happen that way. But you might begin to get a glimpse of it in those moments when your sitting is collected or good, however that is for you, if there's a real sense of joy just in that bare, attentive experience. The third hindrance, aversion, the third concentration factor of joy, interest. The fourth hindrance, or the obstacle to concentration, is worry, agitation, restlessness. It's when the mind is really disturbed, won't settle down. It's like when the leaves are blowing off the trees out here. They don't land on the ground and stay there. They just keep skimming along. The mind filled with restlessness gets close to the object, and just goes right over it. Doesn't land on the object and stay there. The mind's too restless, too agitated, too much energy. Many years ago I used to live on in a commune, <clears throat> and we used to have bees. And every summer, you'd have to open the hive, check to see if there's any any disease, and add some, add some more frames for the bees to fill up with honey. Well, when you take the cover off the beehive, you have to be really gentle, because you know you rattle their cage, and they all come out, and they're looking for the disturbance. But if you're really gentle and take the cover off. They'll all come out and buzz around, 
but they won't land on you or they won't land on the hive. They'll just buzz around protecting the hive if you're gentle. You do your work, you put the cover on and leave. It's like the mind. It gets close to the object and just buzzes around. Very restless, very agitated, stirred up. The fourth factor of concentration that opposes this agitation, restlessness, is called sukha. It's the happy comfort of mind and body. When the joy that I was speaking about just previously, when it becomes mature and is not so exhilarating, but is a rather subdued enjoyment, the mind and the body become very tranquil, very at ease, very okay. When things are just okay, the mind and the body are comfortable. And there's a degree of happiness in that. This is sukha. It can get very subtle. The piti or the joy is very exhilarating, very obvious, very clear. But when it becomes mature and sukha arises, the mind is very smooth. The body feels very smooth. Sometimes people just say, things are okay. Not much happening, but it's okay. It's that sense of okayness, which is sukha and opposes the restlessness and the agitation that hinders concentration. Sometimes it can feel like the body is so soft, the mind is so soft, like cotton, or like clouds, or just like floating, not really setting on anything solid, but just floating. very pleasant. And when sukha is strongly present in the mind, our perception of sense, whether we're seeing a sunset or tasting an apple or whatever it is, becomes extremely heightened. And there's a sense then that that sunset I watched was the most that rice cracker, rice cake, was the best thing, even though you know it's just a rice cake. But when sukha is present in the mind, there's that appreciation of our experience. Things are okay, really okay. Again, This isn't a state to be reached and hung on to, nor is it a condition to be looked for particularly, but rather just to notice if and when it comes momentarily. There may be moments, there will be moments in each of your days where it's okay. Recognize that, acknowledge that. This appreciation of sunsets, or this appreciation of 
crackers, the chirping of the birds, whatever it is. It's not the same as desire and attachment for them. Because the appreciation comes not from attachment, but from actually clearly observing without attachment what the experience is. You might notice sometime when you're really hungry, you're really attached to that rice cake and you eat it, what the taste is. Another time when you're very mindful, things are okay and you taste it. There's a distinct difference between the two. You can begin to notice this in your eating meditation. Sukha, or happy comfort of mind and body, is the antidote for restlessness. The fifth hindrance, or the fifth obstacle to concentration, is desire, craving, wanting, that Sharon spoke about the other night. It's grasping and hanging on to sense objects not seeing them clearly for what they are. Wanting more of good taste, good sights, good feelings. One object that most of us want a lot in our meditation is to be comfortable. You know, the body, it isn't comfortable. Let's be honest. Most of the time it isn't. And we want it to be. And we sit in our meditation and we adjust. You know, wherever your particular kink is, right shoulder, neck. It's all from desire, attachment, wanting to feel good. It's said that desire or craving arises because we think we can get enjoyment from that thing. But really that attachment to that thing causes bondage, causes the mind to shrink, to get stuck. This happened to me a lot in Burma. I was fortunate enough, when I went to Burma, I was told the food there is, hmm, it'd be nice to have some Western food once in a while. And after I'd been in Burma for a while, I got one supporter, or one supporter in Thailand, took it upon herself to keep me supplied with a lot of Western food. So she'd go to the airport once a week in Bangkok, find somebody going to Burma, and send this big package of Western food to me in Burma peanut butter, crackers, lots of good things. Of course I liked it, I was waiting for it. <laughs> but my room began to be like a general storeroom of <laughs> a shop. And I had to keep it all in order and protect it and take care of it. And when other people came, I was willing to, to share with them. But it became a tremendous burden 
to have to take care of all this stuff I was attached to. Finally, I got wise. I gave it all away. It came back, you know, in bits and pieces. I got all I needed for my Western food, but I didn't have to take care of it. Freedom from attachment. When it's present in the mind, very uncomfortable, hinders the mind, keeps the mind from getting concentrated. The factor of concentration or the factor of mind that directly opposes desire and craving is steadiness or concentration itself, one-pointedness of mind. When we can connect and stay with the object and the mind gets really interested in observing what's happening, sees clearly what it is, the mind becomes happy, comfortable, and the body becomes at ease and okay. The desire for something else disappears. We're with what's happening and content happy, okay. The desire is gone. The mind stays focused. The mind stays one-pointed, collected on the present experience. When the mind is collected, It's the difference between a floodlight and a spotlight. When we first sit down to practice, our mind is really open, looking and catching everything. As we begin to connect with the object, sustain and stay with the object, get more focused, more precise in our application of energy, the wide-angleness of the mind's focus becomes really narrow and precise so that the light of the mind isn't flooding everything, but it's a spotlight on just the object that we want to see or that's presently arising. When the mind is so concentrated, it can stay with a single object without jumping, without skidding off, without glancing off of it, but can stay with and deeply experience the whole object from its inception through its duration and when it ends. When we can stay with an object, any object, with the mind that's collected, one-pointed, we can know that object in all of its detail. That knowledge is the beginning of wisdom. How clearly we can observe the in-breath, the out-breath, the rising, the falling, leads to the clarity with which we understand all of our mind, in all of our body. In practicing metta, of course, we stay with 
the feeling of loving-kindness or love or wishing someone to be happy, to be well, to be free of suffering. It's that continuity of the same feeling which makes for the development of great concentration. The mind stays just with that feeling, pervaded to different people, yes, or different groups of people, but because the object stays the same, the mind can get really collected, really focused and concentrated. In insight that we're practicing here for the most part, the factors of mind that concentrate the mind, the ability to connect, sustain, the joy and interest that arises, and the comfort of mind and body, they're the same factors of mind, but we're observing changing objects, first a rising, then a falling, then an itch, then a wandering mind, then a pain, then a tension, a tightness, a tingle. The objects are changing, but the factors of mind momentarily are concentrated on each one. If we can sustain our mindfulness or the continuity of knowing from one object to the next and from that object to the next, whether it's the primary object, secondary objects, mental or physical, the mind can become powerfully concentrated, as powerfully concentrated as when doing a pure concentration practice. It's as if we took a single thread, very weak, easily broken. But if we take many of these threads, weave them together, make a strong rope, not easily broken. Each momentary note of the changing objects in insight practice is a thread. And as we develop the ability to note continuously, we add threads to become a strong rope. The concentration becomes strong as our ability to be with the object develops. It's the continuity of mindfulness which deepens the concentration. It's not the trying to get close and concentrated that does it. That striving, that's misprecision or wrong aiming of the mind. But it's the continuity of observing whatever is arising that deepens the concentration that focuses and collects the mind in one spot. I've mentioned the five hindrances. Sleepiness is opposed by the ability to connect with your object. Doubt about the object is opposed by your ability to stay with the object, to sustain your mind in observing. Aversion or disliking the object is overcome by interest or joy in the practice. Restlessness or not being able to land on the object is opposed by or overcome by happy comfort of mind and body, sukha, and desire or wanting some other experience is overcome or opposed by single-pointedness of mind, 
concentration. We don't really have to try to develop joy and happy comfort of mind and body and concentration. These three naturally result from the connecting and sustaining if they're developed. So of the five, we really only need to develop the ability to connect with the object and to stay with it. Connecting and sustaining yields or produces or gives rise to interest, happiness, and concentration. So please try. Let's sit for a little while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.